a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. In this podcast, every week we tackle an international dilemma, something on the international stage that is happening, often political, and Dr. Keith Souter breaks it down. There is no one better suited to this particular subject matter, Dr. Keith. Three PhDs in international relations and related topics. You've been a media commentator in this area for many, many years. My background as Kate Mack, I used to be on air and radio. I've also produced... TV and radio for many, many years as well. So we know each other very well. <laughs> and often I have no idea what Keith is talking about, so he gets to explain it to me as well as we go along. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about the coronavirus. It has been the, top, the subject matter of the last couple of weeks. It, cont- it will continue on for a very long time. And, Keith, you want to talk about the politics of it, really? Yes, I'm not a medical expert, so I can't comment on the medicine behind it. But what intrigues me is the actual politics of it. This is a virus which originated late last year in Wuhan in China. And so far, it's infected tens of thousands of people, most of whom are in China. But of course, as those Chinese people move around the world, so they carry the infection with them. As we speak, over a thousand people have died as a result of this, including the young doctor who is very quick to diagnose the problem. So what I find fascinating from a political science point of view rather than a public health point of view, from a political science point of view, is just simply what this means for the Chinese system of government. There is, a, if you like, a social contract between the Communist Party, which runs China, and the ordinary person in the street. The social contract meaning that there are obligations on both sides. So the Chinese Communist Party says, we will restrict your rights in certain ways, you know, limited access to the internet, etc., the quid pro quo is that we will look after you. That is that is the social contract. So the Chinese expect a high degree of protection provided by their government because they're giving up a certain amount of their own liberty and there's a quid pro quo they expect the government to intervene. So what I find fascinating is that the Chinese Communist Party is clearly in a state of confusion about how to respond to this current crisis. If you cast your mind back to about a decade ago, we had the SARS tragedy, which took place. So that SARS, um, again, out of China and referred to the, um, in both cases, the Chinese live too close to their animals and they pick the diseases up from their animals. And they seem to eat odd animals. And they meet the <laughs> odd <laughs> At times. Although some of the stuff that's going around on social media is not actually filmed in China, so you've got to be very careful about taking that on board. But, you know, when we had the SARS crisis, then the Chinese government was accused of covering it up, being too slow to act. So the Chinese government now has been much more active in all of this. We still don't know for sure how many people have been killed, the official figure is around about a thousand, but you hear stories of, of mass graves, etc. And the Chinese social media, which I don't get access to, but apparently the Chinese social media, including here in Australia, is full of information, you know, of alarmist nature, which is why you'll notice so many Chinese people going around the streets of Sydney wearing a face mask. Mm. Totally unnecessary. Well, that's what our experts have come out and said, by the way. Um, the chief medical officer for, I'm not sure if it's New South Wales, Australia, has said, you don't, they're useless. Do not bother. I might also say I've, I've heard at least one medical practice in Sydney which has been supplied with these masks for free are selling them to patients at $5. <gasps> 
That is. <laughs> There's always way to make money out of public scares, I've got to tell you. Yeah. Grace. That is oh. great. So the Chinese now are trying to be so determined how they handle this. And the flow on effect for us in the global community is now immense. One, obviously, is just the, the sheer number of Chinese who are travelling. The figures are really quite remarkable. The Chinese are now, because they're a wealthier country, the Chinese now are doing a lot more travelling. I'm looking at the global figures, the um, places, um, sorry, places generating the largest number of visitors, being tourists or um, students, etc. You've got Germany, the United States, Britain, and then you have China. So China has suddenly become the fourth biggest supplier of international travellers, really just in the last few years. It's a reflection of their wealth. Mm. Yeah. So they can afford to travel um, a great deal. Here in Australia, the Chinese are very important for our economy. Um, They tend to spend per person more than the people that we get from Germany or America, Japan or New Zealand. Remember, New Zealand used to be our major supplier of tourists, a country of only 4 million people. Now, with China at 1.4 billion people, we're getting a lot more visitors and each one spends a lot more than the the poor New Zealanders. But not at the moment. At the moment. (laughs) Not at the moment. Mm. And that's exactly why we're so worried. It's a blow to our tourist industry, which, of course, has already been hit by the, the wildfire. And now... On top of that, you've got the, the breakdown for students arriving in from China. So the Chinese are major providers also of international students, students who are coming to study at Australian universities or schools. And about 20% of visas that are issued are issued to Chinese for student purposes. So there's very significant. So first of all, you just got the basic issue. If you like, it's the law of large numbers. You know, when you're talking about China, 1.4 billion people always makes a difference. It's been said that if every Chinese person were to jump up in the air and then land on the ground at the same time, it would knock the earth a little bit off its um, off its axis. What we do know is the earth has moved one inch because of the amount of water that's just been built up behind the three gorges, the dam on one river. The pressure of the water has pushed the earth off its axis by one inch. So when you're dealing with China, number one concern is always the law of large numbers, that that will distort whatever perception you might have of anything. Uh, remember, it's the old campaign that we used to have with the Australian Wool Board was to get every Chinese person wearing one woolen sock. We'd even have sheep grazing on the Melbourne cricket ground to reduce that amount of wool. So that's one dimension. Another dimension is that China is very much a part of now the global supply chain. So a lot of people use Apple equipment. Apple equipment is not actually made in China. It's assembled in China. So you've got, it's designed in the United States. It's assembled in China from components which are themselves made in Taiwan or Thailand or South Korea. So there is a global supply chain that's now involved and which is now, of course, being disrupted. It's bad news for Australian producers because we can't get our goods into China And it's bad news for people who rely on Chinese components, Chinese equipment, because they can't get the stuff out of China. Yeah, so what is the restrictions that we're facing at the moment? Actually, it's not something I know much about at all. So anything that's manufactured, they're not... So trade's being disrupted. Trade is being disrupted, mainly because the Chinese factories are closing down. You know, they've just had the Lunar New Year, which China has now extended, as an excuse to say to people, you can have more holidays. Uh, That is, don't bother to try to get to work. Because the worry will be you turn up at factories... 
and you could then end up spreading the infection. So the Chinese government has, have said, we'll close the factories. Well, that's bad news. If you want to get Apple equipment, you've got to get your stuff out from, from China. And by the same token, if you close your factories, you don't need to import so much stuff. Or you've got stuff that's left on the high seas, on the cargo ships. So this is another, so you've got the disruption caused by the Chinese not moving or being allowed to move or being allowed to enter countries like Australia. That's one problem. And a second problem is the global supply chain problem. And we've got a, a new uh, way of thinking in, in economics, which is called just in time. So in the old days, say in the 1930s, redundancy was a very big issue. So the Sydney Harbour Bridge, for example, could carry far more cars than it currently does. It was built with lots of redundancy. So, But now so much of what we've got in life is designed by bean counters who want to squeeze as much as they can into whatever they're doing, which means, therefore, you actually have less resilience, less surplus capacity. A bit like for someone like myself who wears a suit, you always like to have a suit with extra fabric inside in case you suddenly put on weight and you've got to expand your trousers or the jacket. <laughs> That's redundancy. But if you have a suit where they don't give you that extra fabric inside, well, then you can't expand the suit. So that's what. It, that's why redundancy is so important, but we have moved away from that because the bean counters are saying no just in time because we now have this very sophisticated global supply chain. It's an issue that I've also raised, of course, in the issue of petrol. We are not honouring our international obligation in terms of the storage of petrol in Australia. We, we, we have to maintain 90 days reserves and we don't. Our refineries are closing down. Politicians won't talk about this because they don't want to scare ordinary motorists. But we, again, are relying on this just-in-time thinking and I think we're just cutting too many corners. And, and a tragedy like this current one reminds us about just how fragile our modern era is and we ought to build far more redundancy into the system. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Today we're talking about the coronavirus and the political impact it is having uh, around the world. Keith, we've just been talking about the fact that obviously there is a, tra a travel ban on Chinese coming to Australia. Now they spend a huge amount of money here, plus we're in the aftermath of the bushfires, so that is a problem in itself. Uh, manufacturing world trade has been disrupted because the um, a lot of the operations over there are shutting down, a lot of manufacturing offices are shutting down the factories. But this, it doesn't just end there, does it? Does no, it, it doesn't. And and what I find fascinating is that, is that will we at some point with China have an equivalent to the Arab Spring? So this is the thing that intrigues me, that if you look back at other societies, not least in Asia, which used to be fascist dictatorships, as they got richer, so they tended to become more democratic. It's a bit like what's called Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which we always show as a triangle, although he never used the triangle. But you know, his view was that you, you are concerned about food, shelter, clothing, and then you work your way up to more intellectual pursuits, self-actualization. right? So if you're in a, a poor peasant society and you're worried about where your next meal is going to come from, you're not thinking about politics. You're worried about where your next meal is going to come from. And as the societies get richer then the fascist dictators actually plant the seeds of their own destruction. And we've seen that in South Korea, Taiwan, Indonesia, the Philippines. 
all of these countries were run by the military or at least dictators, and they uh, they then modernised the society and the societies got richer. South Korea has now got an economy the size of Australia's. Remember back in 1953 it was overrun by the communists, but then it had a period of dictatorial rule, but now it's a, a flourishing democracy. And so it's a middle-class society and a democracy. The exception to this trend has been China. China has got richer, but it's not become a freer society. If anything, it's, it's actually becoming even less free. President Xi has decided that he's going to be in office for life. None of this rotation every five years, grooming your successor. So President Xi's in for life. You've got the social credit system, which we've looked at, which is a way of monitoring people's behaviour. And if you don't have enough points, then you won't get a, your train ticket in August to go home to your ancestral village to clean your ancestors' graves. Plus they're the most spied upon Most spied upon. Population, yeah. yeah. So what is interesting is that China's actually going in that other direction. But, of course, in politics, nothing ever stays the same. You always do get surprises. And for me, living through all of that Arab Spring, which we covered on Channel 7, for me it was fascinating that here we had a young fellow, uh, Mohammed Bousisi, who committed suicide. He was despairing of life as, as a vegetable seller in, um, in Tunisia, just went home and committed suicide. He'd been slapped around the face by uh, a particular individual and that had humiliated him. Her brother says that she's actually quite a nice woman, but it's the slap literally that was heard around the world. So this poor guy went home, committed suicide, not because he was expecting to go to heaven or become a martyr, but because he just tired of living. And that death triggered what's called the first Facebook revolution. So the youngsters got onto Facebook and were talking among themselves about this fellow who took several weeks to die. And so that was in Tunisia, where the government was then overthrown in a matter of weeks. In Egypt, of course, the government was overthrown. In Libya, Colonel Gaddafi said, I'm not going to be overthrown, and then resulted in trying to kill some of his own people, and the Americans came in and killed him or contributed to it towards his death. And then we've had this long-running war in Syria, all sorts of other things, all because of this one flashpoint. This, this is, for me, what makes international politics so interesting, that it, it was the suicide of a, a vegetable seller, a, an otherwise unknown individual, of whom there's only one photo, but nonetheless has been able to just move around the world in terms of this revolution. And it'll require something like this in China, now, the worry I've got is that if you have upheavals in China, they're our major trading partner. Mm. We can cope with upheavals in the Middle East. We can't cope with upheavals in China. But, uh, neither can anybody else who, for example, uses Apple equipment. You've got too many eggs in that one China basket. So then how do you, I mean, what, what you're assuming, I guess, what you look at the Chinese population and think is that they just don't know how good life can be and so they're going to put up with whatever is served to them. They, 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 they're much more of a capitalist society now. They're, at least they're growing economically. Um, but they don't necessarily, if they're given those liberties, then maybe that's enough for them. Maybe the government thinks they're going to get away with that just being enough for them and they're not going to push back. That's President Xi's point of view. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. That's what yeah. I would think as well yeah. if I was the leader of that country. But at what point does enough become enough now, exactly. though, Keith, or does it end it down the track? And if you've got people who are now dying because of these diseases and people now feel very insecure, remember they've had food scandals, they've had baby milk scandals, uh, there's a lot of corruption in China. And you've got, an ordinary, you've got a lot of Chinese people who say, I no longer trust the institutions in this society. The Chinese government is breaking its social contract. 
is here to keep us safe and it's not. And do you think, though, that, that they will become aware of it, especially in light of something like this where it has spawned so many conspiracy theories around the world, it makes them look terrible? Yeah. Like that, I just told you about this vision that I've seen of Chinese on the street, like vehicles, like army vehicles spraying chemicals into the street, people with leaf blowers, what you look, they look like they've got masks and whatnot, but bureaucrats with leaf blowers full of contamin- of, of chemicals spraying yeah. the streets of Wuhan and other places uh, to try and rid of the germs, like you can only imagine. But they're, they're going to extreme measures here, aren't they, Keith? They are indeed because the Chinese realise that if they're not careful, they could end up with a rebellion against the Communist Party because the Communist Party is failing to protect its own people. And that's the biggest problem they'll face. If they, Absolutely. Yeah, but what will be the trigger? It's, it's, it's interesting, as you say. Will it be this disease? Remember, it's little Mohammed Bousisi who triggered the Arab Spring. And we've only, as far as I can tell, got one photograph of him even. So it's not even if he was a major celebrity. He was just, a, 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 you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. That's why I'm saying that you've got to be so careful when it comes to politics that it's a small incident, like an assassination in Sarajevo in 1940 that then triggers World War I, or the death of a vegetable seller in Tunisia that triggers the Arab Spring, which we're still living with. So it may well be the outbreak of a disease like this that causes unrest in China. Watch this space, Keith. Absolutely. This has been Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.